worship the king. I hope you caught the theme in the music this morning. I don't always have a good theme. This morning, there was a theme in the music. I worship Christ, from the babe to the man who died for my sins, the Lord God who will ride triumphantly into Jerusalem one day, to he who is the Messiah who will rule the world. Worship him. I'm not sure if this sermon is a continuation of Christmas or if it's a, uh, a retro, a back at the beginning in our, my Jesus story series. We'll continue that in two weeks. We're going to talk about the wise guys today. It says, after Jesus was born, in my translation, it's about his birth. We think that this could have taken place up to two years after the story in Luke chapter 2. And the reason we think that is because of the massacre of the innocents perpetuated by Herod the Great when he realized that he had been deceived, disobeyed by the wise men who had left to go back to the east. Um, According to verse 11, Jesus with Mary and Joseph were living in a house not the manger, a house in Bethlehem because the Magi came into the house, says in the text. Joseph was a carpenter. There had been much moving around because of the census by Caesar Augustus. Whether he was a carpenter by stone or by brick, we don't know. Um, We always think carpenter wood because we live in Wisconsin. Um, If you go to Israel, you could see where carpenter might have been limestone. Um, Either way, he worked with his hands and to God's glory, um, I'm sure that he found some kind of employment. He and Mary now have a house. I've got a question for you that I thought this week. Had they more children by now? Doesn't say that they did, didn't say that it didn't. We know that Joseph and Mary had James and Jude and other brothers and other sisters. So we know there was at least a half a dozen children born after Christ. It would be natural to think that within two years, Mary might have been expecting again or maybe even nursing another baby. So the days of Herod the king, the text says. Who is this Herod the king? History calls this man Herod the Great. He was an Edomite. Remember, uh, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Esau meant red, and Edom, the the people that lived in the southeast side of the Dead Sea, the southeast side of Israel, were the Edomites. Herod the Great was an Edomian or an Edomite. His grandfather had first taken over that area of Edomia um, and Perea and, and had so played politics with Julius Caesar, that by the time of Caesar Augustus, now two Herod generations later, Herod is ruling not only the land of Edom, but also the Perea, also the land of Judea, and had recently by Caesar Augustus been given control of Galilee. And so all these different Roman provinces were under the authority, and by fiat of the Roman Senate, As early as 40 A.D., he'd been given the right to call himself the king. 
Herod the great king of Israel. He was a, a genius in many respects. <clears throat> he was a politician that knew how to work Rome. He was an architect. He built the city of Caesarea. He, um, if you are in Israel today or in Jordan today, your guide will likely point out different markings on the limestone and say, see, this is obviously Herodian because of the, the bevel that is here at the top of this slab. Um, so this was built by and during the reign of Herod the Great. Um, palaces all over. He, Masada is a sign. He built a, a palace that stretched out into the Mediterranean Sea in Caesarea that the ruins of the said palace are, are still available to be seen today. Um, outside of Jerusalem, he built a, a fortress that has recently been under excavation. Um, Herod the Great was an architect per excellence. He, he, um, he was nuts. He was extremely cruel. He um, had many wives. First, the Hasmoneans, which were the, was the dynasty that came from the Maccabean Revolt, okay? They had been the rulers in Israel, and he made sure that every Hasmonean was killed. He um, killed some of his wives. His favorite was a beautiful woman by the name of Miriam. Um, he not only killed her and then went crazy looking for her, but he killed her um, 17-year-old son, who was very popular, ended up killing actually three of his favorite wives' sons, he, um, five days before his own death, he had killed the one who was supposed to take his place and be his heir. Incredibly jealous. Um, John Phillips says in his commentary that perhaps as many of six to eight thousand of Israel's best had been massacred by Herod the Great. It was to this man that the Magi came. No wonder when the text says that Herod was troubled, that then the next phrase says, and all Jerusalem with him. When a man with this much despotic power is upset, everybody around him had better be upset too, just like he is upset. It says, then wise men from the east. My text reads wise men after the pattern of the King James um, the Greek word is actually, if, if you are turned off by the contemporary term magi, actually the Greek word is magi. It's a transliteration in those texts that use that. Uh, from where they came, it was a term that was given to, um, I want to call them astronomers and give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was a term that would more identify with people that we would call astrologers. But no doubt they were people who studied the stars. It says from the east. That term in the Bible is used of Ur of Chaldees, of where Abraham came. It's a term that is used in the Bible of Babylon. It's a term that is used of what we would call today um, Iraq, Iran. And so these magi, I think, probably came from the Babylonian era. Remember if you study your, or remember from your Old Testament text the likes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at Daniel's buddies. They became bureaucrats in Babylon, men of means, men of power. I think it was probably a descendant of someone like that that was these 
men that came. We think there are three. Tradition says that has actually given them names, but the truth is we have no idea how many <coughs> or what names they had. I'm presupposing, even when I say I think they might have been Jews, maybe even descended from those bureaucrats, maybe, you know, if, if the men in Babylon had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they had many of the, the Psalms, especially those that had been written by Moses. They in Babylon, had heard in the streets of Babylon the preaching of Ezekiel. And so there were many scriptures available to those Jews that were in Babylon. Um, A lot of the historical books in what we would consider the Old Testament will be put together by Ezra the scribe, someone who was born in Babylon but then later comes back to Israel. Did Ezra have access to those historical records as a young man in Babylon or or did he find them and and codify them and the Holy Spirit put them into our Old Testament text after Ezra came back to Jerusalem all all my my surmising here is is on this idea I don't think these men were ignorant of the scriptures rather I believe these were educated men who not were astrologers like we would think today but were astronomers who knew the Old Testament text and were studying who God was. The text they refer to is in Balaam's prophecy. Remember Balaam? He's the, he's the preacher <coughs> who gets hired by the ungodly to curse Israel. And when he cannot curse Israel, he blesses Israel, but he preached the right message in the wrong place. And in that right message, there's this phrase from or these verses from Numbers chapter 24. Um, it's not going to be on the screen. Listen, Numbers 24, 16 says, The utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open, quote, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of of Tumult, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir, which is the capital of Edom, also his enemies, shall be a possession while Israel does valiantly. I think it's interesting, of course, it was the Edomite, Moabite people that Balaam sold himself to and Herod would have been descendant of people who were of that stream and lived in that area. It's interesting that Israel will have victory over them was part of this prophecy. So Balaam prophesies, says, I see him, but not yet. Who does he see? The one who will be the victor, the one who will rule Israel, the one who will set Israel on a right path. And Balaam, in this prophecy that was given him by God, says... A star shall come out of Jacob. And then note that the wise men, the magi, tell Herod, we have come to worship him. They were convinced that this star that would come out of Jacob was not a man. They were convinced that this star that would come out of Jacob was worthy of worship. They believed that he was more than a king. Imagine, if you will, if you think about it a little bit, here are these people, men, who live in Babylon. They are are students of God's word. They are students of the stars. And then one day they decide they're going to go on a trip. Now, 
if you're going to go on an inter-country trip, you don't just, you know what, let's do this tomorrow. Let's, let's take off, you know, now and go, you know, two, three countries away to a different culture. And can you imagine in that day when your travel would be by beast or foot, the arrangements that would have to be made financially, family, business. It says his star. We, we, we've, we saw his star. And in the text, as you read different translations and, and catch the verbiage, or, or I, by verbiage I mean the verbs, <clears throat> it, it almost seems to me that they saw a star in Babylon, figured out this must be God's star and headed to Israel, and then the star is going to pick up after they are um, in session with Herod. Uh, scientists for hundreds of years have tried to figure out, astronomers, what exactly did these guys see? Um, Galileo thought he had it figured out, thought that maybe planets came together and formed this star, and he came up with a, a pattern that happens every 800 years. And so he said that's, that's probably what it was. Um, others think maybe there was an explosion like a supernova and, and perhaps they saw that and that was the star they saw. A star that would appear in Babylon and direct them to Judea and then in the text say that when they saw the star again that it settled and pointed to a particular house. I don't know about any stars that you've seen recently but I've never seen a star point at a house. Never. And yet they knew what house the Christ was in because of the star. I would propose to you that, that any surmising we might do on the natural phenomena that might have created such a thing is probably just that, just a, a surmising that God gave them a sign in the heavens, so directed their hearts that they saw a miraculous star And then they went to Israel only to have the star reappear and direct them specifically to the house like no union of Jupiter and Mars or no supernova could have possibly done. Herod was troubled, thinking that there was a potential rival. He was upset. He gathered those who would know, the men who had copied the scriptures that was their job the scribes the chief priests those people who were supposed to teach and in Micah chapter 5 it is talking about Israel's future uh, read through it on Christmas Eve and in Micah chapter 5 it talks about the fact that that God is going to do a wonderful powerful thing through his Messiah and then he says little Bethlehem you little backwoods place of sheep you are going to figure prominently in this. It's going to be a big deal. The promised king who will defeat all, revi- all rivals and fulfill all of God's good intentions toward Israel is going to come from you, Bethlehem. I, I think it's interesting that one generation later, the descendants of these, both physically and professionally, the descendants of these scribes and priests will be the ones who incite the crowd to say, crucify him, crucify him. Wouldn't you think if these men of means and education showed up and said, here's in the scriptures where we know that Christ is going to be born, wouldn't you, if you were the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the priests, 
who meticulously taught and copied the scriptures, wouldn't you have gone? Wouldn't you think they should have gone? Wouldn't you think that this would have been a a life-changing moment? So these men came. And when they saw the star that pointed to a house, the Bible says they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They could trust God. God was worthy of trust. And, and they were excited about what God had done. Their agenda to worship God had been satisfied. They were able to worship the king. Consider, if you will, this morning, the Magi and their worship of the king. I have three points. Number one, worship flows from theology. They had a knowledge of God. Worship flows from theology. Bad theology preempts worship. If you are ignorant of God's character, how can you worship God, really, for who he is? Someone might say, my God is a God of love who would never send anyone to hell. Then you, my friend, worship of God of your imagination because the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his son to die for our sins that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the God that you've imagined that is a God of love who would never send anyone to hell so loves you. It's not the God that you imagine. (laughs) The real God, the God who is so loves you that he gave himself for your sins so that you don't have to go to hell. Bad theology preempts worship. Any person who is ignorant of God then cannot really worship God. Note in this text, and I realize I'm in a very Catholic community even as I say this, note in this text that they did not worship Mary. There's absolutely nothing in the text that would suggest any homage, any respect to Mary as being anything more than the mother of God, the mother of this child, this boy who was in front of them. (laughs) It does not say that when they saw them they fell on their faces and worshipped them. But rather it says, when they saw what the star did, they fell on their faces, faces and worshipped him. There was a, a little boy that they worshipped who is God. I believe having the Old Testament books that I've spoken of, they knew that God would come and they knew, they believed in their heart that this was God. And so they fell down and worshipped him If you say, well, you know, pastor, uh, theology is boring. I I don't get into theology. I don't know much about the word of God. My friend, you cannot really worship. If you think your God is whoever you imagine him to be, you, you, you are no more better than a Hindu who takes paper mache and makes an elephant body and puts a human head on it and gives it wings and calls it its God. You say, well, Everybody knows that's, you know, polytheistic and idolatry. Well, my friend, if you think you can fabricate in your little brain whatever you think God is without the assistance of the Holy Spirit and the clear teaching of God's word, you're no better. No, true worship flows from a thorough theology. Number two, worship demands a price. Our English word worship is derived from the old English word worthship. We worship what we decide is worthy of worship. Whether it is our flesh or money or another human being or entertainment 
When we decide something is worthy to consume us, that is what we worship. We dedicate to what we have determined is worthy. I've given you three sub-points to help with this a little bit. Worship of God requires my time. If you would worship, you must set aside time to worship. If you would worship God, you must set aside time to read his word, to study theology. If you would worship God, you must set aside time to pray. You know, I, I still struggle with this. And, and, and here I am, 148 years old, I've been pastoring for a million of years, and, and I still struggle with finding time and making myself do the nasty, hard work of praying. But if you worship, if, if Jesus is worthy of my affections, my time, then I will make myself find. And I don't, I don't mean, you know, oh, you know, God, please, you know, bless the missionaries and thank you for this food, amen. I mean entering into God's presence and caring about people, praying for marriages, praying for those who are hurting, praying for those who are suffering, praying for our country, praying by name for people in the church. You know what? That is exhausting. Quite frankly, most of the people I pray for aren't worth it. But God is. But God is. He is worthy of my time. He is worthy of my affections. He is worthy. And therefore, I will take time. I will take time to be in church. I will let it interrupt my schedule because God is worthy of worship. Because God is worthy of worship. Can you imagine how long this took? These magi left their businesses, left their estates, gave them to somebody else. Can you imagine how long it took just to accumulate the resources that they could then sell? I doubt they had the gold frankincense myrrh just sitting in, you know, here's a box waiting for the king to show up, let's go. No, I I think they probably had to go make that stuff appear. You know, they didn't... It wasn't a visa, okay, that, that didn't work that way. They had to sell maybe cattle, maybe real estate. Maybe they had to borrow from friends, make time. This took months and what would cost thousands and thousands of dollars in our day. Because he was worthy of worship because he was God. So what have you spent of your time? Worship demands Secondly, not, it demands a price. It's a worship of God requires my time. Worship requires my prioritization and my elevation of God. I'm going to be a little bit redundant, I know, here. We make time and money for that which we love. We save or borrow for that which we really desire. We deny self for an end goal, or we don't deny self because that is our end goal, that we might worship This New Year's time is often when we reflect upon life. So what did I worship this year? Was it myself? Was it my spouse? Was it my stuff? As revealed by my time, by my money, by my priorities, that third bullet I've given you, worship requires money. I wrestled because this seems so crass that you must have money to worship. But I don't believe that's, what I, that's not what I'm trying to say. But your expenditure of money reveals your heart, what you worship. Do you spend it on your gut or do you spend it on your God? Do you spend it on 
something, some one, or do you spend it on the one? Where, where do you prioritize? I'm not suggesting some kind of a pay to pray, but I am suggesting that what you pay for will probably be very similar to what you pray for. Money is very relevatory. What was the value of the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh? What did they have to eliminate from their lives? What, when they got back to Babylon, if that's where they came from, when they got back to Babylon and their, their, their herd was a third smaller, their business contacts, half of them had gone away, what was their attitude? Was it, oh, <clears throat> shouldn't have done that. Or having done that and come back to less, did they say, that was the crowning achievement of my life. If I never do anything else, I worshipped God. They presented to him gifts. No strings attached. Consider the Magi and their worship of the king. Worship flows from theology. Worship demands a price. Worship is humble submission. The text reads that they fell down and worshipped. To be received in Herod's court, these must have been men of means. I believe they probably had to present political credentials. I believe they were educated men who presented themselves well and wealthy as they walked into Herod's court that day. So picture the little house in the blue-collar district of Bethlehem. As the sun sets, a caravan arrives at the door. Joseph goes to the door to learn who and what. The story makes sense to Joseph. Here this man who's been entrusted with a wife and God's son lets these perfect strangers into his house. That's an amazing thing to me. He lets them into his house. There is no halo over this child's head. Scratch that off your list. Have you watched an 18-month-old boy recently? You know what I think Christ did when they gave him gold? (laughs) Dale said he put it in his mouth. I don't think so. I think he spilled it all on the floor and began throwing it. You say, wait. That's blasphemous. He was Jesus. He was an 18-month-old boy. I know what they do. Maybe the frankincense they began to suck on, that would have been bad. These men came in. There was no halo. He did not make a dead bird live. He didn't turn water into wine. He did not lay his hands on them and mumble some kind of a a blessing. He did not speak Elizabethan English. Can you imagine with all their royal finery as they fell down at his feet? Now they're at his level. He probably runs over and begins playing with the fur. Oh, can you imagine what he would have done with a gold chain or a fancy button? Huh? Then turning that over in his mind and his hand began trying to tear it off. I don't know what really happened. But I do know that grown, wealthy, educated men fell on their face and worshipped a little boy. Because they were convinced that he was God. 
Herod, the priests, the scribes, they're sitting back in Jerusalem waiting for the king to come to them. But these men put everything on the line so that they might worship him. Worship flows from theology. How about it? In 2018, did you worship knowledgeably? Worship demands a price. Did you put God first? Worship is humble submission. Are you willing to put yourself at the bottom of the line so that God may be first? Holy Father, thank you for your word. This is a children's story that we have heard. We've seen the wise guys by the manger since we were born. We've heard this story. We sing about it. Lord, let your word teach us about worship, about worth-ship. May we who say we believe truly put you first in all things. May our participation in the congregation be worth-ship. May we come here with an agenda to worship you. May we put you first in our finances, first in our relationships, May we put you first, O oh God, because we have determined that you are worthy of being first. May we humble ourselves. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let me remind you the first step of worship is knowing that God is your Savior. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned to Christ? If worship makes no sense to you, perhaps it's because you have not a God. Seek him while he may be found. Investigate, find out, talk to somebody. But decide that you are going to worship the one who made you.